0: biblical missionaries. And um, I trust you've got your lesson, you've got your Bibles with you. Uh, the, just keep this in mind because, you know, and this is, is going to be an excellent quarter, we're talking about biblical missionaries. And uh, this year, our theme at Sacramento Central Church is each one, reach one. See, you know it so well. Look at that. Each one, reach one. And it uh, just fits right in. Uh, the lesson study fits right in with that theme. It's the heartbeat, isn't it, of the church, missionary work, and uh, reaching others with the, uh, the good news of Jesus' offer of salvation. And uh, keep in mind, as we're studying together this quarter, that on the 13th Sabbath, which will be the last Sabbath in three months, uh, there'll be a 13th Sabbath offering collected. We're a, a global church, a missionary church, and every 13th Sabbath, of course, we, uh, we pull together some funds and resources and it goes to specific projects that are listed on the back of your Sabbath school study guide. And uh, this particular quarter, uh, send your prayers uh, uh, and save your money for the 13th Sabbath offering because uh, your dollars and your prayers are going toward the Southern Asia Pacific Division. And that covers multiple different countries, from Sri Lanka, Vietnam, Thailand, Myanmar, Malaysia, Brunei, Indonesia, Timor-Leste, and of course the Philippines. We just heard a little bit about some work in the Philippines, and uh, what a what a blessing. And so uh, let's remember the work in the Southern Asia-Pacific. It's a very important work and uh, come the 13th Sabbath, we'll be collecting a special offering for the work happening in that particular division. You can read all about it on the back of your your quarterly. Well, let's uh, go right into our study here together and uh, talk about the missionary character or the missionary nature of God. Our uh, memory text is Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 4 and it says, Indeed, I have given Him as a witness to the people, a leader and a commander for the people. God has established His people as His witnesses and, uh, and He wants them to reflect Him in their lives, sharing Him with, uh, with others. Mission, what does mission mean? Mission simply means a sending or being sent to perform a service. That's what it means, sending or being sent to perform a service. Has the church been given a mission? Certainly. The church has a mission in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, the one whom uh, was worthy and is worthy of uh, His disciples' worship, commissions His believers, His followers, His disciples to go into all the world and do what? Preach the gospel and in doing so make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. And Jesus said that I'm going to be with you what? Always even till the end of the age. Jesus promises to be with us through uh, the mighty third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. And so the church has a mission. Jesus, this infantile church, uh, there in the first century, Jesus says, I want you to go to the entire world. And probably they looked around a little bit and said, how are the few of us existing here right now going to do this and accomplish this task? And Jesus said, I want you to go back to Jerusalem, you're going to wait there, the promise of my Father will come, and uh, there's certain conditions you'll need to meet, to meet, to receive that, the outpouring of, of of, of the power of heaven, the Holy Spirit, but when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll be my witnesses. Not only here in Jerusalem, he said, but to Samaria and to every part of the globe. And, uh, and so God, Jesus, had given His mission to His early church. Doesn't, um, doesn't, uh, it's not too difficult to connect Matthew 28 to the mission described in Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 through 12. Do you remember in Revelation 14, verse 6, uh, John said he saw another angel flying where? in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to them that dwell where? In a remote corner of the world? Down just a couple of streets here in the city of Sacramento? No, to the, to the world. And uh, so the gospel's got to go to the world. Jesus said in Matthew 24, uh, when this gospel of the kingdom is preached in all the world for a witness to all nations, then what will happen? The end will come, Jesus will return. And so the church has its mission and Revelation 14, we could say, is the message, the last day message given to the church to prepare a world for the imminent return of Jesus Christ. This message needs to go to the entire world. So certainly, we have a mission. God has given the church a mission. Essentially, the mission is to share the good news of God's saving grace, His death his resurrection and his imminent return with those who don't know or haven't received it. Now, um, I pulled some more statistics here uh, with regard to Christianity in general and their efforts, Christianity in general, which includes the Seventh-day Adventist Church and their mission, the evangelization of the world, their missionary endeavors in the world. And uh, so here are just a few things. It's interesting uh, information in the unevangelized world. That is, uh, in some countries where there is no there's no public uh, uh, evangel- evangelism, public effort. Uh, there are certain countries where proselytization uh, is prohibited, and uh, could mean your life if you were caught doing so. And so in some places that where there is no public evangelism, there are about 20,500 full-time Christian workers and about 10,200 foreign missions or missionaries, rather. In the evangelized non-Christian world, where there are countries that may be predominantly Buddhist or Hindu or Muslim, perhaps, so in those evangelized non-Christian countries, there are about 1.3 million full-time Christian workers. And in the Christian world, there are about three over 300,000 foreign missionaries to other lands, also 4.19 million full-time Christian workers. Uh, that's 95% of, of Christian workers work within Christian countries. Isn't that interesting? 95% of Christian workers work in Christian countries. Now, that's not to suggest that uh, Christian countries aren't in need of missionaries or uh, mission endeavors of the church. Uh, some Western countries are post-Christian, aren't they? And have become, are becoming more and more secular. I hail from a country that is post-Christian. Australia's be- become and has become a very secular nation. And, uh, and so certainly there is work to be done in these countries as well. Bible distribution, uh, about 78 and Bibles are distributed globally per year and then the number of Christian books in print, there are approximately six million books about Christian, Christianity in print today. And then, uh, a sad statistic, there are a number of Christian martyrs uh, annually, the average is about 160,000 martyrs per year. You don't hear about that in the Daily News, do you? don't hear about Christians who are sharing their faith and for sharing their faith they lose their lives. It's a sad reality but it is a reality nonetheless. We have it pretty good right here in the United States, don't we? There are some countries that you're viewing from where you have it good as well but some places, some countries, uh, mission and missionary work is very difficult. Now, when when individuals talk about mission and they they scale back, they begin a timeline of Christian missionary activity, they often start with the Apostle Paul. But missionary activity among God's people didn't begin with the Apostle Paul. How far back do you have to go? Well, you can go back to Jesus, couldn't you? But it would even occur before that, wouldn't it? Did God raise up a people in the Old Testament period that were to evangelize the world? Sure, but you'd even have to go back further than that. You have to keep going, when we're talking about a timeline of Christian mission, we have to go back. Ultimately, the Christian mission is God's mission. It's God's mission, it's not yours and mine, we don't own it, it didn't start with us, we are a part of, and what we do, is a part of God's mission. It began in the heart of God and it was based on the love of God, for it was the love of God that sent His Son to a dying world, and, of course, it will be accomplished by the will and the power of God. What God has started, what He set in operation will be accomplished. Now, that doesn't mean everyone, unfortunately, is going to accept the saving grace of Jesus, but the mission of the church, spurred on by the love of God, uh, is to accomplish the work of sharing the gospel, inviting people to a saving relationship with Jesus, in the hopes that many, in the hopes that some will accept that precious offer so this quarter's lesson, um, this quarter's lesson is based on a particular model of salvation and we're going to talk about that a little bit here today and review uh, this, uh, this particular week and it'll come up throughout the quarter, uh, this particular model of salvation history. So here it is, there are five points to it. That Number one, God created women, men, men and women and He gave them free will, that's the first point. God is the one who created men and women and He gave us the freedom to choose, free will. Number two, our first parents abused their free will by disobeying God and they had to leave the Garden of Eden, paradise. So they were expelled from the Garden of Eden. Number three, God could not use force to bring them back to paradise. He didn't say, well, okay, you've sinned, I'm going to shut the gates, you guys stay in there and I'm going to force you to do what is right now. He couldn't do that. And number four, Because He couldn't force us, He sent His Son instead on a mission to die in in humanity's place in an effort to reconcile uh, humanity uh, to God. And then number five, God's mission is to make the offer of salvation known to all people and thus open the way to have them, or have them receive redemption, open the way for them to have redemption. The author of the lesson says, at its basic level, mission is letting the whole world know about Jesus and what He has done for each of us and what He has promised for us, now and for eternity. In short, he goes on to say, we who know about these promises have been called to do what? Tell others about them as well. So, let's talk about this week and let's review this week's lesson uh, with regard to uh, with regard to this salvation model that uh, we'll be talking from throughout this quarter, um, and uh, is really the basis of why there is mission, why there is missionary activity. Uh, In the heart of God, there is is the desire for missions. Let's go to Sunday's lesson. Sunday's lesson, God created man and woman. God created man and woman. someone has Genesis 1 verses 26 to 28. Okay, Merrily, fantastic, thank you. So, we're going to come to you in just a moment. Have you ever, ever wondered about your own heritage, your family heritage? Where you came from? Where'd your parents and the grandparents, your great-grandparents originate from? It seems like humans are a very curious lot and we desire to know our history and so, when we go to the Bible and we go to Genesis chapters 1 and chapter 2, Genesis chapter 1 and 2 actually reveals our origin. I mean, ancestry.com can't take you far enough. It's not going to be able to go too far. It'll take you back to maybe uh, your your, your great, 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 great grandparents over there in France or England or Spain or, I don't know, South America, somewhere. But Genesis chapter 1 and 2 reveals our origin. It didn't begin in some primordial soup and turn into goo which landed in the zoo and then apparently became you. (laughs) You notice how I said you. The Bible reveals that this intricate, this complex, this incredibly advanced piece of machinery, the human mind, the human body, came from the hand of a benevolent creator. And we read that in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, Wonderful, thank you very much. So, when you read the creation story, and by the way, Genesis one is a is a brief overview there of the six days of creation, and on the seventh day God rested, and uh, and blessed uh, and blessed that particular day. But six days, literal twenty four consecutive twenty four hour six consecutive days, God made the heavens and the earth. And as you read the account in Genesis chapter two, is a more detailed description of the creation of man and God's mission for man at, uh, at creation. Uh, when you read the account in Genesis chapter 1, you had all these inanimate objects and uh, inanimate objects that God created, but what is it about humanity that stands out from the rest of creation? What is it about man and woman that stands out from the rest of creation? There are five or four areas that we'll just quickly review here this morning. First of all, Adam and Eve were the crowning act of God's creation. Now, some would probably contend with me on that by saying Adam and Eve were not the crowning act, it was Eve who was the crowning act of creation and, and okay, I would accept that, that's fine. Um, so, Adam and Eve, man and woman, were the crowning act of God's creation, that's number one. They got, to, they got to care for and to tend to God's creation, those things He made the days prior. Number two, Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve were not spoken into existence when you go over to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, uh, before that, you're reading Genesis chapter 1 and God says something and what happens? It's so. So God says, let there be light, let there is light. God said, let, the, let there be a firmament. And there was a firmament, let the dry land appear, the dry land appeared, let there be grass and trees and etc. And then, the, and then the, uh, the creatures of the sea and the birds of the air and the animals. The sixth day, you come to the sixth day and God is still speaking everything into existence But He comes to man, and you read the account in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, where it says, And the Lord God formed man out of what? The dust of the earth, or the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And so God didn't speak humanity into existence. God took the time to take the the dirt, the dust of the earth, all its elements, and when, you do a, when, they, when they do a little study on the elements that are within the human body, I mean, we're, we're, from, we're dirt. The bottom line, we're dirt. Um, God took that dirt, He formed and He fashioned humanity and breathed into Adam's nostrils and came and gave him the kiss of life, some have suggested. breathe into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. That's what that word soul means. It just means being, uh, living being. And so God took the time to make us, we were made with the hands of God. Does that tell you something about the importance of humanity, uh, separated from animals and birds and sea creatures and fruit trees and uh, and grass? And yes, certainly it does. In that act alone, God distinguished, put a difference between those objects and humanity. He said, here is my special creation. And as we read in Genesis chapter 1, we were made, what? In the image of God. So number two, Adam and Eve were not spoken into existence like everything else, up to the, and including the sixth day of creation, they were made with the hand of God. Number three, Adam and Eve, we're talking about the differences here between what, what was created up to and including the sixth day and, and, uh, and humanity. Uh, number two, Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. And they were given a moral capacity that other creatures don't and didn't possess. And the number four, Adam and Eve were given dominion over all the creatures of the land, sea and air. It wasn't the other way around. Uh, the birds didn't have dominion over man, man had dominion over the birds. They were to care for, they were to subjugate the land, they were to train and to teach and, um, and that was their responsibility, it was a high honour. In, uh, in that book, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 45, we are told that man was to bear God's image, and this is fascinating, man was to bear God's image because people often ask, how how in God's image were we made? In what way? Image means a likeness, but how are we like God? In what way? In Patriarchs and Prophets, page 45, we're told man was to bear God's image both, two things, in two areas, both in outward resemblance and in character. Isn't that amazing? Now, I'm not, and, and the author's not suggesting, I'm not going to suggest here today that, you know, when you look at man, you're, you're looking at God and His exact form and, and, and His exact image. We're made in the likeness of God, not the sameness of God. If we were, then we'd be God. But it's a fascinating concept to recognize that, that we, in, in creating us in His image, we bear a semblance, a resemblance of His external, His outward, be, his outward being. And uh, when you read the Bible about the eternal God, God what? Sees, God what? Hears, God what? Speaks, God what? Walks, all the very things that you and I do. And so it's not, a, uh, it's not difficult to, to uh, accept that premise, but it's, it certainly is an amazing concept. We're a special creation, and if we explore it and we, we study it a little bit more, we were made for God's glory, Uh, We're told in Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 7, you and I were made for God's glory. We were made for His pleasure, not as a plaything, but for for His pleasure to to look at us and to see our lives resembling and, and reflecting His goodness and grace as we interact and mingle with each other, you see. In us, in humanity was a special creation and that image was likely most evident in terms of their spiritual nature. Adam and Eve were living beings endowed with a free will and a self-conscious personality, and so let's talk about free will. Let's go over to Monday's lesson, and uh, we're just moving right along. This is uh, we, we're, we're talking about miss- missions, but this is the basis. This is where it starts right here. Free will. How do we know? How do we know that Adam and Eve were free moral agents? How do we know? What does the Bible say is the nature of God? First John chapter 4, verse 8, God is love. So God is love. First, the Bible reveals that God is love, and only love is real when it is given and when it is received. That's, that's love. Only lo- love is real when it is given and received freely. When it is given and received freely. So the very nature of God, He is the Creator God, He is a God of love. The fact that He is love tells us that He made humanity with freedom to choose in the, in the very fact that He is love and He desires us to respond to Him in kind, in love. He wants, He doesn't want people that are wound up, plugged in, programmed to love Him and to say that they love Him. That's no fun. What would you prefer? Would you prefer a wind-up dog or an actual puppy? What would you prefer? Now, what would you prefer? You have children? Would you prefer children that are wound up, plugged in? You're you, you, you repro- you programmed the night before and when they wake up in the morning, they come up out of bed and they say, yes, mum. yes, dad, we'll do everything that you ask us to do. Yes, please, yes, ma'am, yes. Uh, no nos, fully cooperative, no freedom to choose. They do your bidding. Sounds, sounds like heaven, doesn't it? No, 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 it wouldn't be, would it? No, you want your children to love you because out of what? Out of love for you, because they because they're happy to obey, because they're happy to uh, to respond to your requests. Say, uh, even though programming sounds tempting at times, but no, we want them to love and to respond to our love freely, and that's who God is. He desires that we love Him freely. Now. Secondly, in the story of beginnings in Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to be be looking at this, verses 15 to 17, in the story of beginnings, we find that God had planted a, a particular tree in the Garden of Eden, and that tree was to be a test of our first parents' loyalty to their Maker. The very presence of the tree in the Garden reveals that man was a free agent. The fact that God put that tree in there tells us that He created Adam and Eve with free will. Look at these verses, verses 15 through 17. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So within the command, not just the the presence of the tree, but within the command to not eat, there automatically we see that man has the freedom to what? To choose, that's right freedom to choose. And, uh, and certainly, that's how God wants it to be. He wants us to be free moral agents. I want to look at a few verses here with you about the, the ability that God has given us to choose. Uh, someone has 1 Kings, chapter 18, verse 21. Okay, Mike, we're going to get a mic to Mike here in just a minute. 1 Kings, chapter 18, and verse 21. Uh, just a couple of verses before we get to 1 Kings. Deuteronomy, chapter 30, verse 19. God gives mankind a choice. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, God says choose life that both you and your de- descendants may live. While God gives us the freedom to choose, He wants to just choose what? Life. He doesn't want us to choose that which is wrong. Adam and Eve, unfortunately, chose that which was wrong. And then Joshua 24, verse 15, a familiar passage of Scripture. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves or choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And then First Kings 18, verse 21. Thanks, Mike. First Kings 18, verse 21. And Elijah came to all people and said how long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, follow Him. But the people answered Him not a word. So God always puts before humanity the ability to choose. You have the choice. You choose life or death. You choose blessing or you choose cursing. You choose curses. You, You choose eternal death or eternal life. I wish that you would choose eternal life. You go to the book of Revelation, and of course, uh, the, it says the Spirit and the Bride say, "Come, and whosoever will, let him come and, and partake of the water of life freely." We get it; we get to choose. Now, this means something very important. God values, first of all, God values values our freedom more than anything else. He values our freedom, insomuch that we would even make bad choices, which is what happened in the Garden of Eden. He values our freedom to choose, and what that means. What that means, knowing that we have free will, means several things. Number one, that God does not determine my course of action. There is a teaching within Christianity entitled and and said as predestination that God actually picks and chooses those who will be saved. He predetermines those who will be saved and, biblically speaking, that's not accurate. Uh, The Bible says that you get to choose You get to choose. When God says you're saved and you're lost, He's not saying, He's not not predetermining that. He's not saying you're locked in and you're cut out. He's not making that choice. That choice is ours to make and what God does is He affirms that decision that you and I make and so God does not determine my course of action. That's what means having free will uh, means. Number two, It also means that one day I will be held morally accountable for my actions. If I have the freedom to choose, then I'm going to be held accountable with those choices that I make. Isn't that right? Sure, no doubt about it. And then, number three, being that I have the freedom to choose, I can't blame the universe. I can't say the universe made me do it. I can't say he or she made me do it. I can't say they made me do it. I get to choose. I get to choose. You know, it's funny, you have conversations with individuals, especially young kids, and uh, it's like they make a poor decision and and talk about their friends, and they made me do it. No, they didn't. No, they didn't. And even even for us grown-ups, if someone had a gun to our head, we still have a choice. Isn't that true? Yeah, not that we would covet that or what we would want that, but the choice is still there for us. So we can't say that the universe made me do it. I have a choice regarding my own thoughts and my own actions. Now granted, we live in a sinful world, we are powerless to choose the right thing and that's why Jesus came, to help us choose and the power, giving us the power to do the right thing. But we have a choice nonetheless. We choose Jesus or we choose the enemy. We choose Christ or we choose self. It's our choice. Look with me at Genesis chapter 3, verse 6 and 7. After the account of uh, Eve, who wandered from the side of her husband and uh, was curious, went by the tree, uh, the devil uh, used this beautiful creature, the serpent, it was a flying serpent, spoke through this serpent to, um, to deceive Eve into eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And it says, so when the woman saw, after she had eaten of the fruit, so when the woman saw that the tree was good, for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. So the fruit in and of itself wasn't harmful, God said just don't eat from that particular tree. Eating the fruit wasn't going to poison them or it wasn't going to kill them, but the fact that they partook of the tree that God said, don't eat, is what brought death, you see. So what made the act of eating from the tree so bad? Number one, the fruit was chosen above the express cu- command of God, signifying disobedience and rebellion. Rebellion. And Number two, the basis by which the fruit was taken implied God could not be trusted or loved. I mean, it wasn't that what the enemy was implying you know, as God really said, and uh, no, you know what, this is going to be okay, you go ahead and take this, and uh, you know, He really doesn't want you to be like Him, knowing good and evil. What was the devil implying? He was implying that God is holding something back from you, and if He's holding something good back from you, then maybe He can't be trusted, and if you can't trust Him, you can't love Him. And that was the basis of His deception, and the devil comes to you and I, often seeking to cause us to distrust the character and love of God. God's purpose, of course, is to reveal in this great controversy battle His goodness and His grace and uh, so that His character might be seen for what it really is. The devil has has, uh, run a a terrific smear campaign. People blame God for all types of things when it's really the devil or maybe it might even be their own choice. And now some things are out of our control, but uh, bad stuff that happens in this world isn't God's fault. It certainly isn't. It's a result of being in a sinful world. Fortunately, one day God is going to put an end to all of that. Righteousness and life will reign forever. So the basis by which the fruit was taken implied that God could not be trusted or loved. This one choice that our first parents made produced some dire consequences. First, in dying, they would die and all the world would reap the results of misery and ultimately death. In the book, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 1661, I just want to read something to you that I think you'll appreciate. Uh, The author says, The tide of woe that flowed from the transgression of our first parents is regarded by many as too awful a consequence for so small a sin. I mean, after all, it was just eating a piece of fruit. How is it possible that all this stuff happened just from that one act? And they impeach the wisdom and justice of God in His dealings with man. But if they would look more deeply into this question, they might discern their error. God created man after his own likeness, free from sin. She's going to go on and explain here. God created man after his own likeness, free from sin. The earth was to be peopled with beings only a little lower than the angels, but their obedience must be tested. For God would not permit the world to be filled with those who would disregard his law. Yet, in his great mercy, he appointed Adam no severe test. And the very likeness, you've got to think about this. God said, of every tree you may want. You can eat of every tree. I know we don't know how many there were, but there were probably Many. He said, There's just one right here. I don't want you to eat. So it wasn't a terrific test. It wasn't huge. It was light. The very lightness of the prohibition made the sin exceedingly great. If Adam could not bear the smallest of tests, he could not have endured a greater trial had he been entrusted with higher responsibilities. And then the last paragraph had some great test been appointed Adam, then those whose hearts inclined to evil. Would have excused themselves by saying, well this is a trivial matter and God is not so particular about little things. And there would be continual transgression in things looked upon as small and would pass unrebuked among men. But the Lord has made it evident that sin in any degree is an offense to Him, or is offensive to Him. And so I think the commentary stands for itself. I think think there's good food for thought uh, for us there. Why was the pear barred from the tree of life in particular? You remember the Bible says that angels were commissioned to guard the entrance to the to the gate of the Garden of Eden. Look with me at Genesis chapter three and verse twenty two. It says, The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live what? Forever. So God barred access to the tree of life for what reason? so that sin wouldn't be perpetuated. That's exactly right. The Tree of Life obviously sustained their immortality. It was a conditional immortality, but now after eating of the fruit, they received unconditional mortality. And God said, no, 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 we can't have them eat from the Tree of Life to perpetuate sin. So, while sin existed on planet Earth, the Tree of Life could not be accessed, but all those who remain faithful to God will one day again enjoy eating from the tree of life. And that's the text we have. Richard, uh, Revelation 22, verse 14. Revelation 22, 14. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. Isn't that a wonderful promise? So the, the tree of life was barred. Humanity couldn't access it. But God has made a way by which we can access the tree of life again. Through, through grace, through the grace of Jesus Christ, through His shed blood for you and for me, through receiving Him by faith and the Holy Spirit working in us to will and to do of His good pleasure, we may have access once more to the tree of life. Man, and when you read in Revelation 22, what the tree of, 12 different fruits, 12 months of the, what, amazing. It's a beautiful tree. And if you like a particular fruit, if you like several fruits, you can choose, you can make your choice there at the same tree. You don't have to go hunting for other particular kinds. It's all going to, well, at least 12 of them are going to be sitting right there on that tree. Wonderful. Well, let's go to Wednesday's lesson. Let's talk about God's initiative to save us. So, mankind fell. We sinned. We were in a dark, deep pit, could not find our way out. Now, I think I understand what someone means when after they've lived in ignorance of the gift of salvation or opposing God's free gift, and they turn their hearts toward God and they say, I found Jesus. I think I understand what a person means. I've even said it myself. I think we understand what it means when a person says, I found Jesus. Now, it's not like God wasn't there all along trying to woo that person to his side. Actually, a response of repentance when finding Jesus reveals that God was in fact pursuing us all along. He was wooing us, drawing us to His side, you see. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says that while we were yet sinners, Christ what? Died. Some of us were ignorant, some of us were rebellious, whatever the situation was, God was still after us, pursuing us and I think when we look at our own individual lives, we can attest to that. Here we were at this particular point in time, and then uh, some prodding and some drawing and wooing and you see the love of God, you see Christ dying on that cross for you and for, for you particularly, and you're moved and you turn your heart toward God and you say, "You say, how is it possible that once I, w- I was lost but now I'm saved? How is it possible that I'm I'm here in this place right now because God came after you? God came after you and me. In Genesis chapter 3 verse 9, we read after Adam and Eve sinned the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Adam, where are you? Now, it's not that God didn't know where Adam was. God knows everything. He knew where Adam and Eve were. They could play the best game of hide and seek possible, but God knew where they were. What God was in fact asking Adam and Eve was, where are you spiritually? What's happened? Why have you done this thing? Why have you transgressed against my explicit command? Why? Why? The Bible records that after Adam and Eve sinned, God came looking for them, not the other way around. On the contrary, because of their shame and their guilt, Adam and Eve did what? They hid, hid from the presence of God and humanity has been doing that ever since. Fortunately, God has been coming after us ever since as well, isn't that right? Certainly. He speaks to each one of us and He says, don't, you don't need to hide from life or from even your life. He says, I will cleanse you, He says, I will satisfy your deepest spiritual longings, I will give your life meaning and purpose. I will save you completely and entirely. God comes to each one of us speaking those words. If a person is without hope, he comes speaking hope that there is hope in Jesus Christ. If a person is, is discouraged and disappointed, he comes, comes speaking words of encouragement. If a person is feeling lost as all get out, he comes speaking of grace and forgiveness and mercy. God is, after, you know, God is after us too. If we're, if we're on the wrong road, He's after us. You know, you ought not be doing that. Here's what's going to happen if you, if, you, if you continue down this pathway and He tries to bring us back, woo us back. God comes speaking to us. He's after us. God's missionary spirit, naturally, of course, is fully seen in the incarnation and the ministry of Jesus Christ. When He came to reveal the character of God, He came to prove Satan's accusations wrong, to show the law of God could be kept and to die in the place of humanity and of course to destroy the works of Satan. So what are the following verses? We're going to look at several of them here. Someone has 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, right over here Michael, all right, fantastic. Uh, What do the following verses tell us about the death of Jesus, the greatest demonstration of His love? John chapter 3 verse 14 and 15, Uh, Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, and he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What does that verse tell us about the death of Jesus? You remember back there in the book of Numbers, God's people were were rebelling, complaining against God, God allowed serpents to come into the camp, a lot of folk were dying. And uh, and Moses pled on behalf of the people and God said, okay, I want you to take a brazen serpent, make a brazen serpent, put it on a pole, erect it so people everywhere in the camp can see it. And when they look to that brazen serpent, they will what? Live. They will live. And Jesus took that story and he said, just as Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be what? Lifted up. And he said in John, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to me. Whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus was lifted up in your and yours and my place. Isaiah 53 verses 4 through 6, surely He has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet he, uh, we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions, He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him and by His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to His own way and the Lord has laid on Him... The iniquity of us all. Jesus took our place. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. What a wonderful God. Thank you, Michael. What a wonderful God. He who knew no sin took upon him our sin so that we who knew not righteousness would receive the righteousness that comes from God. Talk about a wonderful transaction. It wasn't fair for God, but wonderful for us. In summary, in the book Desire of Ages, page 25, you're familiar with this, you've heard it before, and I'm going to read it because it's so powerful. Christ was treated as we deserve, that we might be treated as He deserves. He was condemned for our sins in which He had no share, that we might be justified by His righteousness in which we had no share. He suffered the death which was ours, that we might receive the life which was His. With His stripes, we are healed." On a mission to Afghanistan, to find some high-value enemy insurgents, Staff Sergeant Robert Miller's team of eight elite American soldiers and 15 Afghan troops were moving along a rocky, snow-covered trail when shots rang out. Miller's captain was injured almost immediately. As the squad took over, Miller realized that they were badly outnumbered. It was 100 to 22. Rather than retreat to safety, he ran directly at the enemy. And he did so, providing cover for those that needed escape. His parents were told that he lost his life. But in losing his life, he saved all of those men. Every single one. What makes a man give his life in order to save others? What makes a God make the ultimate sacrifice to save you and me? I only have one word, love, love. So let's go to Thursday's lesson as we wrap up this week's class and study, Metaphors of Mission. Mission is God's initiative to save humanity. I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. Mission is God's initiative to save humanity, And it is motivated by his love for each one of us. There's no doubt about that. The gospel presents Jesus on a mission to seek and save that which was lost. And in John, he said to his disciples, I've come, my meat is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish that work. And then in John chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus looking at his disciples, he looks at you and me and he says, As the Father has sent me, so send I you. So send I you. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 and 14, two metaphors for mission are used and uh, we need to ask the question, what do they stand for? So, Matthew 5, verse 13 and 14, as a matter of fact, I'm going to just come and grab my little travel bag because when we're on a mission, we've got we've to bring our uh, travel bag, right? If you fly a little bit, you realize that most people don't carry much luggage anymore, you know, they uh, take those small little carry-on bags or something like this, and apparently, their whole week's worth of clothing is in a little bag like this. I don't know how they f- how they figure it out, but that's how it happens. It may have something to do with those charges for extra luggage. I'm not sure. So, when you go on a mission, right, you carry you're carrying some very important things. And so, God says here, Jesus is telling us things that we need to take on our mission. And what does He say? Verse 13: You are the what? He says, You are the salt of the world. Now. We used Morton, iodized sea salt occasionally, right there. So Jesus said, you are the salt. You are the salt of the world, salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Salt is only worthwhile when it's what? Applied, when it's mixed into the ingredients. Have you ever had saltless bread? doesn't taste too good to me at least, saltless bread. In Palestine, it was gathered from the marshes along the seashore or from inland lakes. The simple facilities for gathering it resulted in the presence of impurities. In contact with dampness or exposed to rain, the highly soluble salt itself would wash away and it would leave the tasteless impurities. would be good for nothing. And that, that's what was taking place. The underlying idea Jesus is conveying when comparing our influence in this world to salt is the quality to preserve. Now, before refrigeration and other means to preserve, salt and spices were largely used for preservation. In a similar way, you and I, by becoming an agent in saving others, pointing them to Jesus, that is, who can save alone, we exert a preserving and a purifying influence in the world. The world would be a lot worse if it wasn't for the godly example of and the influence of christians in this world Amen. you are the salt of the earth god doesn't want us to hide he wants us to mingle and exert that powerful influence well we're still on our trip as missionaries we're the salt of the earth what else does jesus say in verse 14 he says you are he says you are the light of the world i won't shine it in your eyes i promise you are the light of the world a city set on a hill cannot be hid, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. What does light do? Light dispels what? Darkness. Darkness. That's exactly right. And it's God's plan that through the lives of you and the lives of me, we will be able to dispel the darkness of the misapprehension of the character of God in this world. Now, ancient lamps consisted of a clay or metal bowl. and It was often, they didn't have flashlights or torches, of course, back then, but ancient lamps consisted of a clay or metal bowl and it was often shaped as a saucer. And the wick, the wick floated in the oil and it was lighted and it would either rest on the side of the edge of that particular bowl or it would uh, project up through a, some type of small opening. As we take in God's Word, as we take in the Holy Spirit and live that word through the Holy Spirit in our lives, then the light of God's goodness can shine through you and me to others. I want to close in reading a little statement here from Testimonies for the Church, Volume 6, page 29. Ellen White says, the missionary spirit needs to be revived in our churches. Every member of the church should study how to help forward the work of God. Notice where the missions are, both in the home mission and in foreign countries. Scarcely a thousandth part of the work is being done that ought to be done in missionary fields. God calls upon his workers to annex new territory for him. There are new rich fields of toil waiting for the faithful worker, and ministering angels will cooperate with every member of the church who will labor unselfishly for their master. Isn't that a beautiful quote? May we be missionaries for Jesus. This coming quarter we're going to learn about other missionaries that God sent out into the world. To uh, share his uh, the light of his love, the goodness uh, of his grace, uh, the salt they were the salt of the earth, and we'll be studying their lives and learning some lessons about how to be missionaries. Not only when we think of missionaries, we're going to be thinking of missionaries locally and missionaries abroad. God's nature draws him to seek us. God's nature reveals himself to us, he wants to reveal himself to us and he wants us to draw wants to draw us into a saving relationship with him. God always, always invites men and women to become his agents in his mission. and the question is, will you respond to his invitation today? May God help us be all that he wants us to be. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio,